Brethren, I have a prayer in my heart that what I have to say can be said under the direction of the Spirit to our edification. I invite you to join me in that prayer. I have in mind saying a few things about the responsibilities of priesthood bearers. I shall first speak to us fathers concerning our responsibility to teach and train our children. I shall then speak to the bearers of the Aaronic priesthood. I recently spent Saturday night in a hotel. Sunday morning I was awakened by rowdy talking. The language was profane, filthy, and disgusting. I was shocked to learn that the speakers were mere children. Into my mind came the proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And then came the words of the revelation, little children cannot sin, for power is not given unto Satan to tempt little children. And then I read and thought about the next sentence, that great things may be required at the hands of their fathers. I was saddened as I thought about the suffering which these children and their fathers will have to endure because of the neglect of the training required by their fathers. We fathers should never forget the Lord's decree that inasmuch as parents have children in Zion that teach them not to understand the doctrines of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of the hands when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. And they shall also teach their children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. Referring to these instructions, the Doctrine and Covenants Commentary has this to say. Many people in the world consider that they have done their full duty to their children when they have given them shelter, food, clothing, and education. But Latter-day Saints have a still more important duty. As parents, they must teach their children. It is not enough to send them to primaries, Sunday schools, and day schools. The parents themselves have a personal duty to perform as teachers at to, of their children. They must see to it that the little ones are taught to pray and walk uprightly before the Lord. Now, if we fathers would frequently read verses 40, to 50 of the 93rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, we would be greatly helped to keep alert to the divinely imposed responsibility to teach and train our children. And now let me remind you, Aaronic priesthood bearer holders, that you yourselves have a responsibility in this matter. The Lord holds you responsible for your own conduct from the time you are eight years of age. At birth, each of you were enlightened by the Spirit of Christ, 
this spirit, sometimes called the conscience, gave you a sense of right and wrong even before you were eight years old. When you were baptized and confirmed, you were given the gift of the Holy Ghost to help you. At 12 years, most of you received the Aaronic priesthood. To you, God actually delegated some of his priesthood power and authority. He has so much confidence in you that he has given you authority to perform certain functions of his church, functions which the Savior himself performed. And, and when you perform them, the, your actions are just as sacred and authoritative as when Jesus or his apostles performed them. Concerning the responsibilities of the Aaronic priesthood, the Lord at the time he organized this church said, the priest's duty is to preach, teach, expound, exhort, and baptize, and administer the sacrament, and visit the house of each member, and exhort them to pray vocally and in secret, and attend to all family duties. The teacher's duty, he said, is to watch over the church always and be with and strengthen them and see that the church meet together often and also see that the members do their duties. The deacon's duty is to pass the sacrament, gather fast offerings, and to warm, expound, exhort, and teach and invite all to come unto Christ. The blessings you will receive, you Aaronic priesthood bearers, if you properly perform your assigned Aaronic priesthood duties, will be glorious. I hope you will have such a desire and a determination to so magnify your present callings that when you receive the Melchizedek priesthood, you will continue on until you are numbered among the elect of God which the Lord promises in the great revelation on priesthood as follows. He says, Whoso is faithful unto the obtaining of these two priesthoods and the magnifying of their callings are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renew renewing of their bodies. They become the sons of Moses and of Aaron and the seed of Abraham and the church and the kingdom and the elect of God. As a general rule, great and noble men have been noble boys who built their foundations for greatness while they were in their Aaronic priesthood years. As I now refer to some of these great men, I suggest that you note their virtues and resolve to emulate them. You might pick out one as an ideal that you'd like to emulate. First, let, me, let us consider Joseph, the great, and, and take note of the great moral virtue of chastity demonstrated by Joseph. At 17 years of age, Joseph was taken into Egypt as a slave and sold to Potiphar, a 
captain of the king's guards. His upright, efficient conduct so impressed Potiphar that he made him master of all his possessions, including his home and his household. Joseph was so, such an attractive and able that Potiphar's wife repeatedly sought to seduce him. He, however, re rejected her advances, saying, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? She lied about him, and he was imprisoned. Because of his integrity, however, the Lord so blessed him that he was released from prison and became Pharaoh's chief administrator. Eventually, he became an instrument in preserving the whole house of Israel. Most of us here tonight proudly claim to be numbered among his posterity. Every priesthood bearer, Aaronic and Melchizedek, should observe Joseph's standard of chastity. Another great man, Daniel. He was a great example of courage. As a youth, he was taken into Babylon to be trained by King Nebuchadnezzar. At their peril, he and his three Hebrew companions refused to break what amounted to their word of wisdom. He, they refused to eat the rich and, uh, and uh, un, uh, and uh, the, the rich foods and things that were not good for them to eat. Later, Daniel further demonstrated his courage by advising two kings of interpretations the Lord had revealed to him, to Daniel, of manifestations which the kings had received, manifestations which pretended evil for these kings. Daniel told the first king that he would lose his mind and because, become like a beast of the field, eating grass as an ox. He told the second king that he would be cut down from the pinnacle of power. So advising these absolute monarchs evidenced great courage in this young man, Daniel. He, evident, he uh, evidenced superb courage at an, of another kind in defiance of the king's edict. He chose to be thrown into the lion's den rather than to neglect his prayers to his heavenly father. And now we come to Nephi, the great virtuous faith as was dem demonstrated by Nephi as a mere youth. I will go, he said, and do the things which the Lord hath commanded me, for I know that the Lord giveth no commandment unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way that they may accomplish the thing which the Lord has commanded them. This was his response to the commandment the Lord had given to his father, that he and his brethren go back to Jerusalem and get the plates from Laban. When his brother Laban went in and failed to convince Laban to let him have the plates, 
and he and his brother Lemuel were about to return to their father in the wilderness, Nephi said, As the Lord liveth and as we live, we will not go down unto our father in the wilderness until we have accomplished the things which the Lord hath commanded us. He then persuaded them to get the gold and precious ornaments they had at their home and try to get by the plates, and this they failed in getting. And then Nephi said to his complaining brothers, as they urged that they return to their father in the wilderness without the records, he said, let us go up again unto Jerusalem, and let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. For behold, he is mightier than all the earth, then why not mightier than Laban and his t 50, yea, or even of his tens of thousands? Nephi, then led by the Spirit, went in alone and came out with the plates. Great was the faith of this young man, Nephi, in his ironic priesthood years. Think of Mormon and his dependability. In case some of you ironic priesthood bearers feel that you are too young to assume the responsibilities of your calling, consider this, these quotations from the writings of Mormon. About the time that Amron hid up the records in, unto the Lord, he came to me, said the Mormon, I being about ten years of age, and said unto me, when ye are about twenty and four years of age, I would that ye should remember the things that ye have observed concerning the people, this people, and then you go to the hill, which is called Shim, and there have I deposited the sacred engravings concerning this people. Take the plates of Nephi, he said, and engrave on them all the things that ye have observed concerning this people. These instructions Mormon received when he was but ten years of age. And five years later, he wrote, And I, being fifteen years of age, there began to be a war against, uh, again between the Nephites and the Lamanites. And notwithstanding, I being young, was large in stature, therefore the people of Nephi appointed me the leader of their armies. Therefore it came to pass that in my sixteenth year I did go forth at the head of the army of the Nephites against the Lamanites. It would seem that an Aaronic priesthood bearer inclined to hesitate to perform the duties of his office because of his youth could take courage from the exploits of Mormon. And now the prophet Joseph Smith. In his youth, Joseph Smith the prophet exhibited all the noble virtues other boys who became great men have evidenced during their ironic priesthood age years. He possessed the morality demonstrated by Joseph in Egypt, the courage of Daniel, the faith of Nephi, and the reliability of Mormon. At 14 years of age, he had the faith to act upon the promise of James. If any of you lack wisdom, 
let him ask of God, who giveth liberally and upbraideth not. So acting, he received his first vision. Courage and reliability he de demonstrated in his reaction to the abuse which followed his telling about that vision. I soon found, wrote the prophet, that my telling the story had excited a great deal of prejudice against me among professors of religion and was the cause of great persecution which continued to increase. And though I was an obscure boy, only 14, between 14 and 15 years of age, and my circumstances in life, such as to make a boy of, of no consequences in the world, yet men of high standing would take notice sufficient to excite the public against me and create a bitter persecution, and this was common among all the sects. They all united to persecute me. It was nevertheless, he said, a fact that I had beheld a vision. I have thought since that I felt much like Paul when he made his defense before King Agrippa and related the account of the vision he had, he had when he saw a light and heard a voice. But still there were but few who believed him. Some said he was dishonest, others said he was mad, and he was ridiculed and reviled. But all this did not destroy the reality of his vision. He had seen a vision, he knew it, and all the persecutions under heaven could not make it otherwise. And though they should persecute him unto death, yet he knew and would know to his last breath that he had seen a light and heard a voice speaking unto him, and all the world could not make him think or believe otherwise. So it was with me, said the prophet. I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of that light I saw two persons, and they in reality spoke to me, and I could not deny it. These great virtues, you young ironic priesthood people, brothers and sisters, are worth following if we would be successful as the great men have in, who have preceded us. I bear my testimony to you that if we will do what these men did, we, these boys did, we will be great men. And I merit that testimony to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, amen. My beloved brethren all around the world, it's a joy to meet with you this conference session. Before beginning, I should like to express my personal appreciation to the, this great body of men who have sung so melodiously to us this evening. As we announced to the regional representatives yesterday, we meet together often in the church in conferences to worship the Lord, to feast upon the word of the Christ, and to be built up in faith and testimony. We hold ward, stake, 
area and general conferences, among others. In recent years, some of our most inspirational conferences have been the area conferences held outside of the United States. We plan, beginning in 1979, uh, for, to hold some co area conferences in the United States. Through these area conferences, more members of the church will be able to meet and hear the general authorities. Two members of the Council of the Twelve and others will attend each conference. To ease the burdens of time, travel, and money upon members of the church, we have also decided, beginning in 1979, to hold only two stake conferences each year in each stake. One of these will be attended by one or more general authorities and the other by the regional representative. This will leave more time for stake presidents and other local leaders to do more in perfecting the saints. Now, my beloved brethren, may I say something about the great priesthood responsibility of fulfilling our role of patriarch in our home. This role becomes more vital with each passing day as new challenges to the strength and sanctity of the home arise. The family is the basic unit of the kingdom of God upon the earth. The church can be no healthier than its families. No government can long endure without strong families. Never before have there been so many insidious influences threatening the family as today around the world. Many of the evil influences come right into the home through television, radio, magazines, newspapers, and other forms of literature. Brethren, as patriarchs in your home, be worthy watchmen. Be concerned about the types of program your family is watching on television or hearing on radio. There is so much today that is unsavory and degrading, so much that gives the impression that old sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are the thing to do today. There are magazines today published, publishing pictures and articles which likewise beckon to the baser instincts of men and women and young people. There are newspapers around the world which, seeking greater circulation, boldly flaunt sex. Some of our newspapers continue to publish illustrated advertisements which are basically provocative, inviting their readers to pornographic motion pictures. It is in such advertisements and motion pictures where seeds are sown for rape, unfaithfulness, the most repulsive of deviant sexual transgressions. Brethren, be vigilant on what enters your home through the printed word as well as the electric, electronic media. Guard against radio and television programs that degrade. 
See that only good reading material enters your home. Subscribe to magazines which enrich the mind and uplift the soul. There are many good magazines, including our own church periodicals, The Ensign, The New Era, The Friend. In some of the large cities of the world, such as London, Paris, Tokyo, New York, and Sao Paulo, there are a number of daily newspapers from which to make a choice. Bring to your home that newspaper which is most compatible with the teachings and standards of the church. Here in Salt Lake City, the world headquarters of the church, we're also concerned. Certainly a powerful force in helping this city and state achieve its high standards has been the Desert News. This newspaper has been a defender of our convictions relative to such moral issues as liquor, pornography, and abortion. It is vital to a safe, clean city and state which are the heart of our growing worldwide church. As the Desert News with the Church News strengthens our city and state, our newspaper can also strengthen the home of you brethren residing in this area of the world, the world headquarters of the church. Brethren, by being alert to what enters your home, you can do much in helping your family seek that which is virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy. I had a note one day from a little boy who said, I know a man who is such a wonderful man, and his name is the bishop. We always had a good bishop. We always loved him. There was Bishop Zundel, Bishop Moody, and Bishop Tyler, and Bishop Wilkins. I loved all my bishops. I hope all my young brethren loved their bishops as I did. It's a real joy to meet with you priesthood members at this important time of the year, a time when we think of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his accomplishments, and his service, and his example, and his great program. He gave to Moses this, for behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. I take this opportunity to express to the leaders of the organizations and all who serve in this great cause of priesthood activity for their devotion and strength and power and influence which is worldwide and affects the lives of numerous people. I've been trying to think of the ways in which my life has been influenced by the youth organizations. I cannot remember when I began, but it seems to me like I can remember going to the old Robinson Hall in Thatcher, Arizona, almost as early as I could walk. It was only two blocks from our home, and we could walk to and from it, and we crossed the Union Canal uh, time and again. 
This big Robinson Hall was a brick building of rectangular shape and an all-purpose building for the community dances and for the Sunday school and the primary, for all church services, for the funerals and for the celebrations and for everything that went on in this little town. One night, this great building caught fire and I remember it lighted up the sky and the columns of smoke and the consternation and excitement for all of us for a big fire like this attracted the entire town and all came hurrying with their buckets to help put out the fire. We had no fire department, but all men and their sons rushed across the town at the earliest call of fire. He who gave leadership sent all the men and boys to the canal bank and lined them back to back and toward the burning building. Standing on the bank of the canal, the first men drew buckets full of water and handed the full bucket to another man. He and to another and back to the crackling flames in the building. And the last man doused the bucket full of water on the flames. A long line of buckets full were thrown on the fire, but the fire was gaining and finally the, hall, the walls stood out as blackened sentinels and we returned to our homes saddened and defeated. It was many years before the fire department was organized in our little town. This was the same canal in which I was later baptized into this church. This was the same canal from which I hauled water to the trees and the plant life about our home. I was the smallest of the boys, so I was given this work. We called the transportation a lizard. Did any of you ever see a lizard? We made it with a Y-shaped tree limb and we fastened the horses, the horse to it, put a barrel on top of it and hitched one of the horses and then I drove it to the canal where I dipped up many barrels full of canal water then drove the horse one block to the home where I dipped out the water for the plants and the flowers. My father made a great effort to surround the new home that we had just built with every kind of flowers and to save them in those late summer days when water was so scarce. It was also my job to drive the horses and cows to the canal for their drinking water also. Sometimes the late summer rains would wash out the dams and leave all the valley dry land and the canals all dry. Then the older boys, my brothers, would rush up to the headwaters of the canal with other men from the community with their teams and scrapers and wagons to haul rocks and brush gravel and gravel to fill up the dam again to divert the water from the river to the farms and to the homes. Years later, we learned to make the sausage dams. The sausage dam was a long wire filled with rocks 
to fill the water holes in the river and divert the river water back into the canal. Nearly all the boys and girls were baptized in this famous canal, the famous Union Canal. The Allred Hall, a frame structure on Main Street, two blocks north of Robinson Hall, was used for multi-purposes. And I can remember going here to Sunday school and to primary as a little boy and to sacrament meeting, for it was here that I was confirmed as a member of the church. We moved again to the old Allred Hall and then to the Academy Building, which was our educational institution and headquarters for the Philosophical Society meetings, as well as all community and church buildings. For Thatcher was, a pop, was populated by almost all members of the church. Then in 1902, we broke ground for a new stake and ward building in Thatcher, and I gave $2 from my nickels and dimes for the building of this stake building. I remember they built, uh, dug a great excavation where, uh, and then there was a long delay before enough more funds could be gathered to construct the building. This was on the way to the post office and the stores where I was often sent to get coal oil for the lamps and for mail to take the eggs and other things that my abilities made possible. I'd always run down that excavation into the bottom of it and then up on the other side. But when the weeds began to grow big in this enclosed area and I once saw some skunks, I bypassed the excavation for I had no interest in skunks as pets or as companions. <clears throat> When the new stake building, which still stands and is being used for stake and ward purposes, was completed, it had just two large rectangular areas, one for the meeting house on the top floor and one for the recreation in the bottom floor, the latter being the basement. I remembered we had wires strung across the building and cloth curtains between the classes. We could hear something of nearly every class that was going on and even sometimes see if the lights were just right. Years later, when we of the basketball team of the Heal Academy did our practicing here and playing our games, and I always took more than my share of the credit for the fact that in this smaller building with some obstructions, we defeated some high school and even some college teams while we were but a high school team. I remember some of the teachers, we always, we always went to priesthood meeting on Monday nights and we deacons would congregate around the pot-bellied stove and there receive our instructions. I remember some excellent teachers in Orville Allen and Leroy C. Snow and others in that place, and also formed some excellent friendships among other young men of my age. Leroy C. Snow of Salt Lake City was there in the bank. He intrigued us as we became deacons with his many stories of the Red Sea and the crossing of the 
Red Sea by the children of Israel in Jerusalem where he had been. I remember going to Sunday school and I believe that I received a great deal of inspiration for the foundation of my life in this place. We had opening exercises in the chapel above and then went downstairs to our classwork. I remember some of the teachers who came so devotedly and consistently to give us the word. And they taught me many things which are basic in my acquaintance with the church programs and the doctrines. My mother had a good voice and played the organ and she and my oldest sister Claire sang duets. I inherited a little of the, her love for music from her so I was always interested in the singing of the songs and I generally raised my voice and sang lustily. I remember the song, We Meet Again in Sabbath School. And we did meet again and again and again all my life. <laughs> and I remember when my mother died up in Salt Lake City when I was 11. There had been a goal set by our teachers for us to never miss the Sunday school every Sunday of the year. She died in October. I had never missed a Sunday school that year since January and had been present every week. And I had little difficult time to square myself with myself to miss the Sunday school that her body lay in state in our home. And I really didn't understand then how hard these teachers labor to teach us and how grateful I am for the great army of teachers in all the organizations of the church who are so devoted and untiring to teach the children of Zion. And then if sometimes we had forgotten the verses, we could all join lustily in singing the chorus of the songs, join in the jubilee, mingle in song, join in the joy of the Sabbath school throng. The song Love at Home we sang in our home evenings, which the Kimball family always held in the early days of the century. I remember the song in our lovely Deseret that Sister Elizar Snow wrote. She composed many of our beautiful songs. I can remember how lustily we boys sang, hark, 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 it's children's voices, children's voices, oh, how sweet. When in innocence and love like the angels above, they were happy hearts and cheerful faces meet. I'm not sure how much innocence and love we had, but I remember we sang it, even straining our little voices to reach the high E, which was pretty high for children's voices. I remember we sang that the children may live long and be beautiful and strong. I wanted to live a long time and I wanted to be beautiful and strong, but never reached it. <laughs> it went on tea and coffee and tobacco they despise. And I learned to despise them. There were people in our rural community who were members of the church who sometimes used tea and coffee and sometimes tobacco. The song goes on. Drink no liquor and they eat but a very little meat. 
I still don't eat very much meat. They are seeking to be good and great and wise. And then we'd hark, hark, hark again. And when in innocence and love like the angels up above, then the third verse went, they should be instructed young how to watch and guard their tongue and their tempers train and evil passions bind. They should always be polite and treat everybody right and in every way be affable and kind. And then we'd hark, hark, hark again. <clears throat> they must not forget to pray night and morning every day for the Lord to keep them safe from every ill and assist them to do right that with all their mind and might they may love him and may learn to do his will. Then we'd sing hark, hark, hark again. <laughs> I was never quite sure whether the angels were limited in their voice culture as we were, but we were glad to take the credit. One of the songs that has disappeared from our songbook was number 163, Don't Kill the Little Birds. And I remember many times singing with a loud voice, Don't kill the little birds that sing on bush and tree all through the summer days their sweetest melody. Don't shoot the little birds. The earth is God's estate, and he provideth food for small as well as great. I had a sling, I had a flipper, I had made them myself, and they worked very well. <clears throat> it was my duty to walk the cows to the pasture a mile away from home there, and there were large cottonwood trees lining the road. And I remember that it was quite a temptation not to shoot the little birds that's you know, on bush and tree because I was a pretty good shot. <clears throat> and I could hit a post at 50 yards distance or I could hit the trunk of a tree. But I think perhaps because I sang nearly every Sunday, don't kill the little birds, I was restrained. The second verse goes this way, don't kill the little birds, their plumage wings the air. Their trill at early morn makes music everywhere. What though the cherries fall half-eaten from the stem and berries disappear in garden, field, and glen? This made a real impression on me so I could see no great fun in having a beautiful little bird fall at my feet. And then there was the song of, that Evan Stevens wrote, the Mormon boy, and how proud I was when we were to sing in the congregation, a Mormon boy. I am a Mormon boy. I might be envied by a king, for I am a Mormon boy. I like this song. I've always gloried in those words. I might be envied by a king, for I am a Mormon boy. I like the song, What Shall the Harvest Be? Because it gave us a chance to sing in parts. 
My beloved brethren, as I close, I bear testimony to you that I hold the priesthood. You hold the priesthood. This is the priesthood that Elijah held and the prophets, Peter, James, and John. Also they and their associates held the priesthood. But without the sealing power, we could do nothing, for there would be no validity to that which we would do. That's the thing that counts. That is why Elijah came. This is why Moses came, for he conferred upon the head of Peter, James, and John in that dispensation these privileges and these powers, these keys, that they might go forth and perform this labor. That is why they came to the prophet Joseph Smith, and the Lord said, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Why should he send Elijah? Because he held the keys of the authority to administer in all the ordinance of the priesthood, and without the authority that is given, the ordinances could not be administered in righteousness. Salvation could not come to this world without the mediation of Jesus Christ. How shall God come to the rescue of the generations? He will send Elijah the prophet. The law revealed to Moses in Horeb never was revealed to the children of Israel as a nation. Elijah shall reveal the covenants to seal the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. The anointing and sealing is to be called elected and the election made sure. I know that God lives. I know that Jesus Christ lives, said John Taylor, my predecessor, who said, for I have seen him. I bear this testimony to you, brethren, this night in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It is now my privilege and responsibility to address you for just a few minutes. I've certainly enjoyed, and I hope all the young men and the priesthood holders, wherever you are, have enjoyed and appreciated the talks that have been given and this fine music that you have heard. As I look out upon this, those gathered here tonight and think of the thousands who are listening in, I realize that I am talking to priesthood leaders, priesthood holders, and those who will assume positions of leadership in the future. Those who are leaders now should be already become men of integrity, men with character, men whose ideals and standards are of the highest quality, worthy of emulation by those whom they lead. So tonight, I, with others who have addressed you, wish to direct my remarks to the young men who will come up through the ranks of the Veronic Priesthood and eventually take over the jobs we older fellows now hold. Yes, no doubt some of you will be standing here at this pulpit as general authorities. One of you may even become the president, and certainly, as you remain true and faithful and keep the commandments, you will all advance in the kingdom of God. What an awesome thought! How necessary and important it is that we all continually strive to improve ourselves and prepare for the day when a call might come to serve in a new or more responsible position. 
The whole purpose of our existence in mortality is to build the kingdom of God and to prove ourselves worthy to go back into his presence. You are here tonight assembled because you sense this responsibility and want to be numbered, I am sure, among those whom the Lord will call his own. What must we do that we that you are not what must you do that you are not already doing? As I have thought about this and the requirements that we must meet in order to be capable, profitable servants of the Lord, it seems to boil down to a matter of being worthy, being worthy of a proper recommendation by someone in authority. The First Presidency and some other general authorities are currently preparing for a series of area conferences in far-flung locations where we have members of the Church. As we make these preparations, it's necessary that we have passports or visas or tourist cards in order to satisfy the requirements of the governments of the countries which we will visit. These credentials must be properly endorsed by the respective authorities involved and only after conforming to the regulations can we receive our papers which will allow us to enter the countries of our choice. Not long ago, Elder David A. Haight, the Council of the Twelve, had been assigned to take a conference in Mexico. As he reached the border, he found that he did not have the necessary papers with him which would allow him to enter the country. In spite of his urgency and his plea, the urgency of his mission, the officials had no authority to admit him without proper credentials. Therefore, he could not attend the conference. So it is with our progress in the priesthood. We must be properly recommended and endorsed by those in authority before we can advance from one office to another. And we cannot receive the certification or the proof of our advancement without being worthy or meeting the requirements. It will be so when we want to enter the kingdom of heaven join with others who have gone before and live eternally with God our Father. It is true that some steal across the line to other countries without credentials, but if and when discovered, they are penalized and deported according to the law. In the Church, some who are guilty of transgression will lie to be advanced in the priesthood, to go on missions, or to enter the temple. But the Lord knows, and they cannot expect to enjoy His blessings. Throughout my life, in government and industry and in the Church, I have had many people ask for letters of recommendation or reference to assist them in obtaining employment or a promotion. I also have had leaders of industry or government ask for recommendations regarding certain individuals whom they might be considering for employment. It's always with a feeling of pleasure and satisfaction when I can respond that the individual is worthy of their, their consideration. But he is honest, dependable, has done well in school, gets along well with people, is a willing worker, does not procrastinate, and is loyal and trustworthy. Under such circumstances, I add that I can recommend him without any reservation and state that he will be an asset to any company. It is with sadness that I respond when I cannot recommend the individual without reservation because of some undesirable traits of character or some quality which, in my judgment, would keep him from performing to the satisfaction of his employer. In fact, I usually say that I am not in a position to vouch for him or I do not respond to the query. It is important that I be honest in my letter of reference as that the prospective employee be an honest and upright individual. 
When choosing a vocation, one should consider what his personal qualifications are. That is, if he chooses to be a medical doctor, he, in addition to the qualities which should be part of each man's character, such as good morals, honesty, integrity, and dependability, etc., should be sensitive to the well-being of people. And someone who is not going into the profession only because it can be very lucrative, but someone who is really concerned and interested in improving the health of mankind. A doctor must be someone who will be prepared to give it his time at any hour of the day or night without thought of his own comfort or convenience. If one wants to be an airline pilot, he should be able to think and react calmly and clearly in the face of unforeseen or unexpected circumstances in the performance of his duties. A lawyer needs the ability to express himself well in both the spoken and written word. A salesman must have enthusiasm and be able to meet people well and have the ability to convince people whom he is trying to convert to his product. A secretary or receptionist must be able to keep confidence and to help create an atmosphere of friendliness and helpfulness in the office where the people wait for the, his appointments. So you see, for every type of job classification, there's some basic and some specialized qualifications necessary to perform the required work with the greatest efficiency. All through our lives, we should be preparing ourselves with a combination of the characteristics essential to filling our niche in life. A few years ago, the Church distributed to our young people a series of small cards with a picture on one side and a message on the other. The series was called Be Honest With Yourself. I quote from one of these with a heading, Can You Pass the Test? Here's a classroom during an examination hour. The students are unwatched. The teacher has put them on their own honor. Except for their own conscience and the disapproval of the classmates, they are completely free to peek into those reference books or look over the shoulders of their classmates for easy answers. What will they do? What would you do? Some critics of modern youth claim that cheating in high schools and colleges is increasing. Even worse, they claim that it is common for fellow students, non-cheaters, and some teachers to condone this practice. Various excuses for classroom cheating are offered to stay eligible for athletic teams or other activities, to win the, fa to win the favor of fellow students or teachers, to satisfy parents who believe their sons or daughters are, are and should be as smart as anybody, or simply to stay in school. Now, none of these reasons is an honest reason. None will hold up in the test of time and conscience. Cheating is dishonest wherever you find it, always was and always will be. The first cheater was Satan, the father of lies. He tried to cheat our premortal spirits out of our birthright to free agency and eternal progression. Satan lost. Cheaters never really win. When anyone cheats, whether by taking help to pass a school test or through more flagrant forms of dishonesty, he cheats himself first. Don't do it. Always and always be honest with yourself." Unquote. Now, This training in honesty begins in the home. Each of us has personal possessions which are ours alone. We can and should share such things as toys and games and our services to one another. 
But we have money or jewelry or clothing that is the personal property of each and should not be taken without the consent of the owner. A child who respects such honesty in his home is not apt to violate the principles outside the home. On the other hand, lack of such training fosters disrespect for the rights property of others. I realize that young people today are under a lot of pressure from outside influences and feel that in order to be popular, they have to go along with their friends on some things which are against their personal standards. But I implore you to consider the consequences of compromising your principles, which may adversely affect your whole life. As a child matures and starts working for money, whether for his parents or his neighbors, he will deal honestly and give honest labor for the returns he gets. Often the earliest employment for a young man is a newsboy, and countless numbers of our successful businessmen today got their start in this occupation. They learned to be prompt and dependable. I knew a newsboy who always had his papers delivered on time regardless of the weather, and he handled his collections in a pleasant, courteous, and businesslike manner. He had many satisfied customers and had no difficulty in getting new subscriptions. And this early training helped him to become a most successful businessman. Another boy I knew, and I have known several like him, did not deliver his papers on time, got mixed up in his collections, and the news office had so many complaints about him that they had to replace him. It is not what work we do, but how we do it that counts. When I was president of the Trans-Canada Pipelines, we had an office boy who did only what he was asked to do. He would wait until called to run an errand or stand around waiting for instructions, never offering to be helpful. As the company grew and the job became more than he could handle, we hired another lad, even younger, who was alert and always looking for extra things to do to be helpful. He would finish an errand and then ask or see if there's something else he could do. In just a few months, one of the departments wanted him for a position of greater responsibility. And within two years, he had three advancements, salary increases and more responsibilities. The other lad remained an errand boy. I remember, too, serving as a scoutmaster and noticing the difference in the boys. Some were alert and anxious to learn, to keep the scout oath and promise, to be of service and to learn all they could about taking care of themselves under all conditions. There would be many stories to tell about scouts who had saved their own lives and lives of others through the training which they received as they took advantage of their opportunities. There were other scouts who did as little as they could and were only interested in seeing how much foolishness that they could get away with. Now, I always wanted the boys to have a good time as long as they were honest and dependable and determined to keep the scout oath and promise and complete their training. I remember so well one of the chief scouts in England who was here giving training when he was in the army during the war had the responsibility of selecting soldiers for high confidential missions. He was always happy, he said, when he found a man who had been a, a good scout and could put his arm to the square with his three fingers extended and say that he kept the scout law and the scout promise. He said he did not hesitate to recommend him under those conditions because he knew that he could depend on him and knew then that he was trustworthy. He said he was never let down by such a man. 
Let me give you an example of how important it is to put first things first if you are to be successful in life. As a boy, I was raised on a farm where I remained until I went away to school. I had observed how a farmer on one side of the road was very successful, while one on the other side was almost a failure as a farmer. What made the difference? They received the same amount of sunshine and rain. They planted the same kind of seed. But one had a beautiful and bounteous crop, while the other had no harvest or a very poor one. I observed that the successful farmer worked at his job. He would do his plowing, disking, harrowing, seeding, and harvesting in the proper season and at the proper time, while his neighbor was procrastinating or off hunting, fishing, while the work was still there to be done. We must learn to set our priorities straight. No one can be successful in his line of work unless he works at it in the proper season and plays the proper, plays the proper season. Work is a great antidote for many things. On the wall of a reception room at the well-known Neurological Institute hangs a card intended not for the sick but for the well. It reads, If you are poor, work. If you are rich, work. If you are burdened with seemingly unfair responsibilities, work. If you are happy, continue to work. Idleness gives room for doubts and fears. If sorrow overwhelms you and loved ones seems not true, work. If disappointments come, work. If faith falters and reason fails, just work. When dreams are shattered and hopes seem dead, work. Work as if your life were in peril. It really is. No matter what ails you, work. Work faithfully and work with faith. Work is the greatest material remedy available. Work will cure both mental and physical afflictions." Unquote. Now, young men, if you were to ask me for my help in seeking employment, what kind of recommendation could I give you? Would I be able to say that you were completely honest and dependable and honorable in all your dealings? Or would I have to say that you measured up to some of these things, but that you were lazy or had not done well in school? or that you would not follow instructions, or that you were a troublemaker, or disloyal, or any other things that would not make you a desirable employee. If it is so important to be highly recommended or to have adequate reference in order to get employment, how much more important it is that we live worthy of a good or satisfactory recommendation from our Church authorities so that we can progress in the various offices and functions of the priesthood and eventually gain admission to the kingdom of heaven. As holders of the priesthood, we should know that God is our Father, that His Son Jesus Christ is our Savior, that through His atoning sacrifice we can be res resurrected, and by following His teachings gain eternal life, that through Revelation the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was established, that Spencer W. Kimball is a prophet of God and president of the Church of Jesus Christ, and that the priesthood which we hold is the power of God delegated to us to act in His name. May we strive every day to live worthy in every way of this great privilege and blessing. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.